Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 113, Space Shuttle Flight 42, STS-43. Tedris with a side of science. Last time, we talked about the life sciences-packed flight of STS-40. The mission wasn't the flashiest shuttle flight in history, but once again confirmed the value of the Space Lab platform, as well as the value of the international partnership that allowed it to happen. By working all out, often into their scarce personal time, the crew returned a wealth of data which represented a huge leap forward in our understanding of how living creatures are affected by the microgravity environment. Today's flight will be somewhat less crushing on the schedule front, but is no less important. Riding in the back of Atlantis today will be TDRS-E, the fifth tracking and data relay satellite. The spacecraft will join three of its siblings on orbit, helping to beef up the tracking network that was quickly becoming the heart of NASA's communications infrastructure. While building up the present of space, the mission also looked to the past and the future. Originally scheduled to fly in May of 1991, the flight would have found itself lifting off almost exactly 30 years after Alan Shepard called out to light this candle on Freedom 7. As a nod to the important milestone, the patch for STS-43 was made in a shape that would be familiar to any space nerd, the distinct outline of a Project Mercury capsule. 30 years is a long time, but also feels like just a blip in the long arc of history, so it's pretty incredible to think of all that NASA has accomplished in those three brief decades. But the mission also looked forward to the years to come. With an extended flight, a number of experiments, and some tech demos, STS-43 would also continue to help pave the way towards a long-term space station in the years to come. Let's meet the crew. Commanding the flight is a favorite of the space above us, John Blaha. We know Blaha from his flights as pilot on STS-29 and STS-33. For STS-33, he only had a few months to prepare, since he was filling in after the tragic loss of STS-51D astronaut David Griggs. Since he had just returned from STS-29, he was already fully trained and hadn't had a chance for any rust to build up, so he hopped right from one mission to another. In an oral history interview, Blaha talks about some of the lessons he learned from his second commander, Frederick Gregory. Blaha told his crew, I don't care how many mistakes you make during training. You can talk and ask all the questions you want in the debriefs. I'm not worried about us looking bad in training. I just want you to be ready when we launch. I think that's a great attitude, so I'm glad to see Blaha in command on this flight, his third of five. Joining Blaha up front was Mike Baker. Michael Baker, who also went by the nickname Bakes, was born on October 27, 1953 in Memphis, Tennessee, but would say Lemoore, California if you asked where he was from. Baker earned a degree in aerospace engineering and headed off to join the Navy. One of the most difficult tasks in aviation is landing on an aircraft carrier, and Baker seems to have made a career of this. In addition to landing on carriers over 300 times himself, he served as a landing signal officer, and after graduating from the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School, worked on carrier catapults and arresting gear systems. He went back to test pilot school as an instructor, which is where NASA found him in 1985 and scooped him up to be an astronaut. This is his first flight, but if you called him a rookie, Mission Commander Blaha might have something to say. He was so impressed by Baker's professionalism and capabilities that he repeatedly said that having Baker alongside him was like having a veteran of three or four flights. Maybe Baker's just a time traveler, since he would indeed fly four times. Moving on to the mission specialists, we find three friendly faces, since Baker was our only rookie for this flight. 
Mission Specialist 1 was Shannon Lucid, who we last saw flying on STS-34 and deploying the Galileo spacecraft. Just like today's Tedris-E spacecraft, Galileo also used an inertial upper-stage booster, so Lucid will be pretty familiar with the deployment procedures. This is her third of five flights. Mission Specialist 2, backing up the pilot crew as flight engineer, was David Lowe, who we last saw on STS-32, the LDEF retrieval flight. One thing I failed to mention when we last saw Lowe is there's a reason his name might sound familiar. George David Lowe is actually the son of George Michael Lowe, who was an integral figure of early human spaceflight, including making the big push to send Apollo 8 to the moon. Having grown up in the 1960s with his father at the heart of the action, it's no wonder that Lowe decided to become an astronaut at a young age. Well, mission accomplished since this is his second of three flights. And rounding out the crew, Mission Specialist 3, Jim Adamson. We last saw Adamson on STS-28, which deployed something classified, but maybe a communications satellite. It's a shame that we don't know much about his first flight, because this is Adamson's second and final mission. As I mentioned earlier, this mission was originally scheduled to lift off in May of 1991, but was rescheduled a few times and hit a couple of snags along the way. The first launch attempt was on July 24th, but that had to be scrubbed due to a problem in one of the engine controllers. These are the big, bulky, specialized computers that sit right next to the main engines, and translate the commands from the general purpose computers up in the cockpit into something that the engines can understand. Replacing them is not trivial, so the launch was rescheduled for about one week later. On August 1st, the engine controller had been replaced and it was time to try again. Unfortunately, during the routine checks, the crew was unable to get the proper response from the cabin vent valve. This is a pretty important check since it ensures that the cabin is properly holding pressure. After going back and forth with the launch controllers for a while, they finally resolved the issue, but by the time they did, that classic mercurial Florida weather was back. Crosswinds were too high at the shuttle landing facility. If Atlantis were forced to perform a return-to-launch site abort, it would have been unable to safely land. Another scrub. Mission Commander Blaha was asked if the slips ever concerned him since they were based on technical or mechanical issues. He said, quote, No. No, because I'm not real smart anyway, and I always used to just believe the team. <laughs> he also explained that for the crew and the families, they weren't as disruptive as you might think, at least in his opinion. NASA paid for the families to stay in Florida during the launches, so they didn't have to scramble to reschedule plane tickets or find a new hotel. And he said that, in a way, it sort of smoothed out the stress by building up to the main event once, only to back away. However, it was a bummer for any friends of the crew who came to witness the launch. NASA would pay for the families, but friends were on their own. Bummer. The second scrub was only for 24 hours. So the next day, on August 2nd, 1991, at 11.02am Florida time, Atlantis lifted off for the ninth time, soaring into an uneventful ascent. As usual, right after main engine cutoff and external tank separation, the crew scrambled into action. The nominal deploy time for Tedris-E was in only six hours, and there was a lot of work to accomplish before that could happen. The external tank was photographed, the Ohms-2 burn was executed, the crew doffed their pressure suits, the payload bay doors were opened, and Shannon Lucid began to work through the procedures for the IUS-driven Tedris deploy. The checklist included a series of communications checks between Tedris and the orbiter, 
health checks to ensure that the spacecraft had survived the ride into orbit, and orienting the shuttle such that Tedris could communicate directly with the ground for further checks. These all hit typical minor problems that were easily corrected. And just a few minutes past the six-hour mark into the flight, Tedris E was sent gently drifting on its way, soaring over the crew cabin. At least, I'm pretty sure it was six hours. That's the typical timeline for these sorts of deploys, but the official mission report lists it as being about four hours after liftoff. That made me suspicious, since A, it's not the six hours that I expected, B, that's not an orbit early or late, but rather some random amount of time, and C, the mission report also states that the separation maneuver was performed around 6 hours and 27 minutes into the mission. It would be pretty weird for the SEP maneuver to happen 2 hours after the deploy, so I'm going to go ahead and call this a minor error in the report. I wanted to call this out just to illustrate how important it is to not depend too much on any one source, even if it's an official source. The deploy itself went smoothly, but there was a moment of mild concern shortly afterwards when a large white object was seen drifting away from the orbiter. After a quick analysis, however, it was determined to be a harmless, if alarming, thing that just happens sometimes. After the external tank separates, there's still a bunch of extra oxygen and hydrogen in the main propulsion system. The orbiter doesn't store that propellant, but those pipes are pretty big, so the prop left in the plumbing adds up. To get rid of this, it's vented through the main engine nozzles, including around 1,600 kilograms of oxygen. In the shadow of the engine bells, it gets pretty cold, so sometimes solid oxygen can build up. So what the crew spotted was an oxygen icicle drifting away. Exotic, but nothing to worry about. After several months of commissioning, Tedris E was renamed to Tedris 5, and as of 2020, remains in service, though these days only as an on-orbit spare. If you ever find yourself on the equator south of Hawaii, look up and wave hello. If this were a typical Tedris mission, the crew would practically be ready to pack up and head home at this point. In the past, these missions have only lasted for a few days. But as I mentioned before, NASA was keeping an eye on the road ahead, a road that hopefully led to a space station in the not-too-distant future. With that in mind, in 1990, STS-43 was extended from five days to nine days in duration, which gave the crew extra time to work on secondary experiments. It also provided another opportunity to study techniques that might be important to a space station and how humans adapt to microgravity. Just one quick side note, it may seem that NASA sure is spending a lot of time and effort studying how humans adapt to microgravity, and I want to put that into context. Keep in mind that even though we've covered almost 80 missions, in a lot of ways the space program was just getting started. On this flight, Mike Baker became the 133rd person to fly on the space shuttle. By my quick count, that makes 176 different people to fly in the American space program. That's a lot in the context of flying people into space, but not a lot in the context of understanding how human bodies work. And many of the missions that we've talked about were extremely short or were so consumed by other tasks that there was simply no time to stop and look at how the crew's bodies were reacting to their strange new environment. And having a firm grasp on any potential issues would be extremely important when designing a space station. For example, if it turns out that people absolutely needed to have access to a 1G environment every month, necessitating something like a rotating wheel on the station, 
it would be a lot better to know that before we spent several years and several billion dollars getting a station on orbit. I think that this trend of using secondary objectives to squeeze in more space station preparations is a pretty smart use of time and resources. Plus, I'm sure the crews were happy to get a few more days on top of the world. One of these experiments focusing on a potential future space station was the SHARE-2 experiment. The Space Station Heat Pipe Advanced Radiator Element 2 experiment was a follow-on to a similar experiment on STS-29, which is sort of cool since that was John Blaha's first mission. From the outside, it just looked like a 50-foot-long boxy pipe alongside the payload bay where the robot arm typically goes. The goal with SHARE was to come up with a system that had no moving parts that could help radiate heat away from a space station. Getting rid of heat in space is actually pretty tough, since there's no air to dump the heat into. Instead, the only way to do it is to radiate that heat away. One way to do that would be to dump the heat into some sort of fluid, and then pump that hot fluid through a bunch of thin plates exposed to space, which would radiate away their thermal energy as infrared photons. The problem with this is now you have a pump. Pumps aren't a huge deal, but they're going to have multiple moving parts. They can clog, they can jam, they have seals that need to be replaced. It's more maintenance. So if it were possible to move this coolant around without any moving parts, that would be great. Plus, since these heat pipes are self-contained little systems, you can make a whole bunch of them. And if any one of them gets hit by a piece of debris, it's not going to be that huge of a deal. But if your pump or the fluid lines to the pump get hit, that's not going to be great. The method chosen for share is a clever trick that takes advantage of phase transitions. Inside the big pipe was a bunch of ammonia and a wick. When heat was applied to the pipe, the ammonia would vaporize, changing from a liquid to a gas. That hot gas was free to wander around inside the pipe, including into elements that could radiate away their heat. When the gas lost its heat, it would turn back into a fluid. But how do you get that fluid back to the heat source without any moving parts? And that's where the wick would come in. Using capillary action, just like a plant moving water against the pull of gravity, Cher would wick ammonia back towards the heat source. It's a pretty clever design. Unfortunately, the first iteration of Cher on STS-29 had some minor problems that would only become apparent in weightlessness. The result was that a bunch of bubbles formed, would not go away, and the whole thing clogged up. It was a hassle, but that's why we test this stuff, to learn what can go wrong. Share 2 is the same idea, but with a few tweaks to try to overcome the bubble issue. Just to cover all their bases, inside the 50-foot-long pipe were two smaller pipes that tried slightly different technologies. Throughout the flight, different temperatures were applied to Share 2, while doing stuff like maneuvering the orbiter to jostle it, purposely drying out the wick, keeping it in shadow so it got super cold, and generally trying to disrupt it. The experiment recovered successfully every time, with no problems. As I learn more about the International Space Station in the episodes to come, I'll be curious to learn why this technology was not used, with pumps being chosen after all. If any listeners are familiar with the inner workings of the ISS and want to fill me in, I'd love to hear it. Email me at jp at thespaceabove.us. Another STS-43 experiment that we've seen before was the Shuttle Solar Backscatter Ultraviolet Instrument, or SSBUV. 
We've already seen this on STS-34 and on STS-41, so I won't go too far into detail, but it does deserve a quick refresher. When you send a spacecraft into orbit to measure stuff like the level of ozone in the air, or the infrared signature of the ocean, or whatever, remote sensing in general, one of the hardest aspects is calibrating the sensor. This is especially challenging if you're studying something new, so you're not even sure what you're looking for. And it's even more challenging since sensors are physical objects stuffed full of electronic components, which are affected by staying in space for a long time. The result of this is that calibrating remote sensing platforms is difficult, and they can drift out of calibration relatively quickly. With that in mind, SSBUV was created as something that could fly regularly on the shuttle and serve as a baseline. The folks who worked on Landsat 4, for instance, spent a bunch of time, money, and effort calibrating its sensors on the ground. But once it got into space, they had no way of checking the accuracy of the sensor anymore. With SSBUV, it can be tested before and after the flight, so its data is really reliable. By having remote sensing satellites and SSBUV both measure the same area of the Earth at the same time, any drift in the calibration of the other satellites could be corrected for. Calibrating sensors and keeping them calibrated remains a tricky task today. Just another example of how having regular flights to space with a low-cost platform can be super helpful. Well, lower cost for the experiment, at least. SSBUV was required to run for 24 orbits. It was hoped that they would run for 32, and they actually completed 33. So chalk that one up as a success. Another experiment that focused on the bodies of the crew themselves wanted to examine how their hearts were affected by working out while in space. The crew carried with them a small treadmill that could operate on the mid-deck. Throughout the flight, both John Blaha and David Lowe worked through a specific sequence of walking and running on the treadmill. Blaha's reaction would be especially interesting since it fell on him to complete the all-important task of guiding Atlantis through re-entry and safely to the runway. Mission specialist Jim Adamson really took one for the team and was forbidden from exercising during the mission so he could serve as a control. What a tough assignment. On flight day two, while Blaha ran on the treadmill, he chatted over the radio with Capcom Marsha Ivins, just in case she'd never had the weirdly specific experience of having someone talk to her from space while running on a treadmill. Ivins asked if he was going to run all the way around the world, to which Blaha said that's what he was doing, but sideways. Not to be left out, on flight day three, with Mission Control using the TV camera to watch Blaha's jogging routine, the flight's pilot, Mike Baker, floated up next to his commander and began wildly quote-unquote jogging in the air beside him. Capcom Marsha Evans quipped, I think he's going to beat you, John. Another experiment that we've seen on past flights was investigating methods for controlling a computer mouse in microgravity. A regular computer mouse was not going to work so great, since it would just float away, and I guess the world had yet to settle on touchpads as the on-the-go solution, so a few different methods were being examined. On this flight, the crew used a pistol grip that looked sort of like a joystick. No word on what the crew thought, but to me it seems cumbersome. Instead of absolute pointing using nimble fingers, you get relative positioning using your whole hand. I'll stick to the touchpad. But the main reason I bring this up is because these checks were again performed using a chunky Macintosh portable computer, which I guess counts as a laptop depending on the size of your lap. 
when it wasn't being used for mouse checks, Lucid used the device to send the first ever email from space. Well, technically the first ever Apple link from space, but I guess that counts as the same thing since it's still text. The email, or Apple link, or whatever, was delivered to Marsha Evans and read, Hello Earth, greetings from the STS-43 crew. This is the first Apple link from space. Having a great time. Wish you were here. Send cry and CS. Have a nice day. Hasta la vista, baby. We'll be back. <laughs> if you're wondering, cry meant cryo, in other words, inputs for the fuel cells, and CS was short for a reaction control system fuel. Also, the film Terminator 2 had just come out the month before, so that reference was a little more timely. And speaking of software, there's not much to say here, but I thought I should mention that this was the first shuttle flight to use both the upgraded computers and upgraded software. The new software was put through its paces throughout the flight and seems to have been focused on more sophisticated operation of the reaction control system thrusters. The new software was more efficient, getting the same outcome with less fuel, which is great. One experiment I can definitely relate to was Auroral Photography Experiment B. The experiment was essentially just a fancy handheld camera with a specific lens and the option to attach a spectrometer or different filters onto the front. When passing through the Earth's shadow, the crew cabin and payload bay lights were turned off. The camera was pressed to the window and surrounded by a cover to remove any stray remaining light. This allowed dim effects like shuttle glow or the aurora to be photographed. I say I can relate to this because a key adapter for the camera was missing. It seems that it was just never packed. I have absolutely arrived at a destination only to realize that I left a key piece of photographic equipment at home, so my heart goes out to the crew. Astronauts are pretty clever, though, so they soon had cobbled together a workable solution using parts they had on board, and the experiment was a complete success. There were a number of other experiments that I'll just briefly rattle off. One examined the possibility of using an optical coupler through the aft window instead of running new cables into the payload bay. I guess with something as complex as the shuttle, running a new cable is a pretty big deal. So if they could just run a payload data cable up to a little flashing light on the window, and a sensor on the other side could read it, then that would be worth the effort. The experiment was slightly misaligned at first, but once it was fixed, it worked great. A small self-contained experiment tried burning solid fuel in different configurations, thin and thick, to see how they differed. Another experiment carefully measured any accelerations transmitted to the mid-deck, which could be important for future mid-deck experiments. Fluids were mixed, protein crystals were grown, and cells were moved around and examined. The mid-deck on a shuttle in orbit is a pretty busy place. One experiment that appeared nowhere on the manifest was cooked up by John Blaha and Shannon Lucid. Both had become close friends during training, and they had discovered that they gave somewhat similar debriefs upon returning to Earth. They both felt like they were somehow almost different people while on the mission, and they wanted to test the theory. Since they both knew each other pretty well, they would simply look each other in the eye and see if the other had changed in some unspecified way during the flight. Both discovered that they were their usual selves, but I have to wonder if they accounted for the possibility that they both were changed somehow, but in the same direction, so they didn't pick up on it. Well, they seemed satisfied with their odd little experiment, but I'm going to go ahead and call it inconclusive, but worthy of further research. All in all, this seems like a pretty nice mission to be on. 
There was plenty of interesting work to do without being crushed by the schedule, and the crew seemed close, friendly, and relaxed. Throughout the mission, Blaha played the role of dad with a new tech toy and kept suddenly appearing with a video camera to capture the hard work of the crew. Caught off guard by one video ambush, Lucid just burst out laughing. The crew also paid further homage to their astronaut forebears. During a broadcast to the ground, they spread out a large piece of fabric in the shape of their mission patch, which was itself the shape of a Project Mercury capsule. On the fabric were the six mission patches from the Project Mercury flights. As they pointed out, the Mercury crews actually didn't fly with those patches, they were made after the fact. So this might be the very first time that the patches had flown in space. It was a nice tribute. As the mission wound down, thoughts turned to re-entry. In yet another step on the road of recovery after the loss of Challenger, this was the first mission since return to flight that was scheduled to land at the Kennedy Space Center. We've already seen a shuttle fly home to Florida a couple of times now, but it was always because weather at Edwards was unacceptable. This decision was not without controversy, since with the shuttle landing facility surrounded by swamps instead of open desert, and always subject to the tricky Florida weather, it was not quite as safe and predictable as landing at Edwards. But it shaved a week of time off of orbiter processing, not to mention some extra money, and this was something the crews had trained for and were fully ready to execute. It was important for their goal of regular spaceflight. That said, if the weather looked at all iffy, they would have been directed to land at Edwards after all. But when the time came, the skies were calm, so on flight day 9, Atlantis treated the citizens of central Florida to the distinctive double sonic boom that meant that the shuttle was home. As Atlantis rounded the last bank before final approach, Commander Blaha encountered an unwelcome surprise. Due to the geometry and timing of their approach, there was a strong sun glare on his windshield that was not present in the shuttle training aircraft. The glare made it difficult to see out the window, including the indicators in front of the runway that helped shuttle commanders stay on the correct glide slope. Blaha was able to get the job done anyway, but was sure to report the issue so procedures could be updated. Despite the glare, Atlantis touched down at a nice, gentle one vertical foot per second, coming to a stop after three and a half kilometers. The mission lasted eight days, 21 hours, 21 minutes, and 25 seconds, and was a complete success. Next time, Discovery is back in the saddle, and we've got a new science-minded Earth observation satellite to deliver. The ozone layer won't keep an eye on itself. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Thank you.